0: Open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4 as we finish this book tonight. And we're going to cover verses 13 through 22. And of course, the title is A Joyous Ending. A Joyous Ending. If you remember how we first started the story of Ruth, it started with sorrow and death, and poverty, and needs. But now as we end the story, it ends in joy and celebration. It started with dishonor for God, but it ends with honor for God. Again, it started with death and poverty, but it ends in prosperity and life. But here's the thing. It wasn't just a stroke of good luck for Ruth and Boaz, and Naomi. And we have to point out that the story ends well by what they did. It ends well because of choices that they made along the difficult way. Because of the good choices and behavior of the three in this particular story. Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi. Naomi finishing well depends on following certain standards in life. In Deuteronomy 30:16 it says for I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands decrees and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this you will live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you. Notice again the qualifications. The happy ending in the life of Ruth and Boaz as well as Naomi, shows the work of the gospel that brings a good ending to men's life. First, we can see this gospel work in redemption. It was the work of redemption that brought the wonderful ending to the life of Ruth and Boaz. That is, in his performance as the kinsman redeemer, and being a type of Christ, he redeemed some property. This resulted in him marrying Ruth and having a son that brought the happy ending to their story. And redemption can turn a poor and the poorest beginning into a celebration of life in the end. The reality is that without the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, there can't be a good ending. Because you see, without redemption, without salvation, no life can end well because their soul ends up in hell. And we also see in this story of Ruth and Boaz the gospel in a new birth. It was a newborn child that brought a good ending to this story as well. It's the same with salvation because it's a new birth that promises a good ending in life. The new birth, that is salvation, born again of the spirit of both. It is necessary for the soul in order for it to end up in heaven in eternity, for eternity, which is the only way to have a wonderful, a wonderful ending to any life. So the good ending to this story shows us the blessing of a godly marriage, which is part, being part of the good story. Boaz and Ruth were godly people. Their marriage was without blemish, as Paul talked about in Ephesians 5.28, without blemish or stain. So it's no surprise that it resulted in many blessings that are mentioned in verses 13 through 22. And it would be wonderful if all marriages brought a lot of blessings because it would really be good for society as well as the church. But too many marriages are a burden these days and a, and difficult to society instead. And a lot, of, you know, to, even in the church, Christian marriages are probably equal to or even more than the divorces of unsaved people. That that shouldn't be so. But the marriage of Ruth and Boaz was done in the will of God. And it was done for the cause of Jesus Christ. That is, the child was born in the line of Christ. So without these factors in a marriage, it will lose the blessings of God. And it will become a curse instead of, A blessing to all those around them. So the great joy of Boaz and Ruth was the birth of a baby boy. Which is often the case. And that was definitely the case with Boaz and Ruth. So let's begin now with chapter 4, verse 13. And it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Remember earlier, Boaz made a commitment to Ruth in front of the ten witnesses and the elders there at the city gates. He gave a he he, he gave commitment that he would marry Ruth to raise up children in the name of Ruth's dead husband. And here in chapter, or am sorry, here in verse thirteen, we learn about the fulfillment of that commitment that Boaz made to produce children for the name of the dead. So it says here that Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Boaz kept his word. He married Ruth. They had a child for the name of the dead. Boaz was faithful to his word, to his commitment. And it's always good to see faithfulness when it comes to marriage. It's really sad to see the number of divorces today. Children have more parents and step-parents, making it difficult for the children. You know, and I've seen that so many times. You know, the children, their, their, their parents end up in divorce and they have difficult times in school. They, they have difficult, difficult times, you know, in their behavior. You know, and I probably shared this story before, but I think of it all the time when I think of the difficulties that children have. Now, I had a parent come in one day and, and to my office wanted to come in and bring her kids and, she, you know, she wanted me to counsel them. They weren't doing good in school. They were acting out. They weren't behaving well. And she tells me to tell them to get right, to straighten up, to do better in school. And I asked her if anything had changed. Yeah, well, me and my husband got a divorce about a month ago. I said, Look, these kids are having a different. You know, when we get married and we have children, it's not about us anymore, it's about the children. Parenting isn't a right, it's a privilege. And they deserve their parents. Their world is rocked, it's shaken. There's security. You know, it, it, it's, they don't know what's going to happen. Is daddy or mommy ever going to come back? Will I ever see them again? And then we expect them to go to school, think well, do well, and, and everything's just as it was before. And it's not. So again, it's always good to see faithfulness when it comes to marriage and relationships. So Boaz, it says, took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception. And this was pointed out to me in this time when I, when I have studied Ruth. And I love this character studies because I get, I'm getting deeper into the people. And, you know, for Ruth and Boaz, there was no intimacy before marriage. It was reserved for marriage. And it should be today in spite of our wokeness and our 21st century and, you know, all of the, everything that you hear. Well, you know, God made us with these desires and then He doesn't want us to go out and have them? I said, yeah, but in the context of marriage. You know, and and this, you know, biblical principle about, you know, not having sex until you're married, it needs to be emphasized more these days, a lot more these days. And our public schools have given in to lust, requiring sex education for nearly every grade. They say, hey, kids are gonna be kids, man, they're at that age, so you know they're gonna be experimenting, so we might as well you know, teach them all the ways that we can. The schools teach all about biology, of sex, but nothing about the moral responsibilities of sex. They pass out condoms. Public sex education is a curse to society today. The joy of the birth of their son, Boaz and Ruth's son, was directly related to the fact that their morals were above reproach. And this is what I was talking about when I picked up on this on this verse here. It says, "The Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son." The thing that was pointed out here is that the Lord gave conception. Psalm 127 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. It's not taken for granted. It shouldn't be taken for granted. It's a reward. The world sees this quite a bit differently. It doesn't consider having children a reward, nor see God as being involved in conceiving children. God gave her conception. You know, a lot of people think, hey, it's like riding a bicycle. Do your thing and you're going to have kids. It doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way for me and Kathy. It took us four years. And you think, oh, hey, it's going to happen like anything else. I know people who can have kids. Hey, what does that say? It doesn't happen just because we know how to make it happen. God gave Ruth conception. Like I said, the world doesn't see it that way. They don't see that it's God who brings forth that child in the womb. Ecclesiastes 11.5, listen to what Solomon said, As you do not know what is the way of the wind, or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. Makes everything. Jeremiah 1.5, he said, Before I formed you, God speaking to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you, or I ordained you a prophet. And we're probably all familiar with Psalm 139, 13 through 18. The psalmist said, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of the sand. The world often sees children as an inconvenience. Wrong timing. Interfering with life's goals. And the world's answer is abortion. Micah 6, 7 says, Shall I this is listen to this shall I give my firstborn for my transgression the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul shall my unborn child pay for the sins that I committed should we sacrifice our children to pay for our sins we can see the hypocrisy of our government man when they make more and more laws to protect children Seatbelt laws, infant car seats, laws against sex trafficking, gun laws, drug laws, alcohol and tobacco. But at the same time, they pass laws to protect the abortionists. The government and society is all about protecting children outside the womb, but not in the womb. And it's interesting to note that all these women crying out for abortion rights, they're already born. They've already been born. What about the rights of the unborn? Who's speaking up for them? Proverbs 31.8 says, Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. We are to open our mouth for the speechless in the cause of those who are appointed to die. The child born to Ruth was born in Bethlehem because that's where Boaz and Ruth lived. Now, Bethlehem wasn't a very big town. It was a small community. It was so small that it was left out of the register of the cities and towns of Judah given in the book of Joshua. But as we all know, there were some pretty famous births that took place in Bethlehem. And and they've become pretty well known. The birth mentioned here was one of the famous births in Bethlehem, the little town of Bethlehem. The first famous birth was Benjamin, whose mother was Rachel, who died giving birth to him there. Another famous birth was David, who later became the great king of Israel. But the most significant and famous birth of all was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Micah 5, verse 2. The prophecy of Christ's birth says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. When babies are born, the women usually, you know, they gather together, they, they congratulate the mother, and they, you know, and they just swoon over the baby, which is normal, It's natural. In Ruth's case, case, the women also showed up to congratulate the grandmother, Naomi. Now, Naomi wasn't actually a grandparent here. But because Ruth was her uh, her former daughter-in-law, and because the child was born to carry on the line of Naomi's son, the honor of a grandmother was given to Naomi. In blood relationship, Naomi was probably an aunt. Look at verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative and may his name be famous in Israel. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the name of the Lord. The first thing said in the congratulations to to Ruth was, Blessed be the Lord. This showed how the women were right on in the very first thing, giving praise to God for the blessing. And praise for God should be the first thing out of our mouth mouth when blessings come. Usually people will pat themselves on the back and say, job well done, and give themselves praise and look at how wonderful they were because of maybe their education, their wisdom, their good judgment, their strength, whatever it might be. But it's a risky thing because it caused Satan's downfall and it won't do the person any good who exalts themselves either. Praise is a sign of thankfulness. And it's the right thing to do to show thanksgiving to God for the child born to Ruth and Boaz. Great blessings should give should give great praise. And how important giving thanks is to the one who receives great blessings. And we see it shown here by the fact that this thankful praise was the first thing spoken by these women that came to congratulate Ruth. They said, blessed be the, the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. In verse 14, a kinsman. Praise is given because Naomi had a kinsman, a close relative, who could redeem her property and provide a son through the kinsman redeemer marriage to continue her, sin, her seed through her, sons, uh, through her sons who had died. The, this blessing shows the gospel blessing. Because the gospel provides a redeemer for everyone. And like Naomi, who wasn't left without a kinsman redeemer, so mankind hasn't been left without a kinsman redeemer. God provided the redeemer for all mankind. It says in Acts 2.21, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our kinsman redeemer. So men don't have any excuse if they go to hell because God provided everything they need to keep them from eternal judgment in hell. God hasn't left us without a Redeemer. But most men don't want Jesus Christ as their Redeemer. But, if Ruth had rejected Boaz's offer of redemption, there wouldn't have been a child or the rejoicing that they're experiencing. In verse 14, the ladies prayed, And may his name be famous in Israel. Boaz, the Redeemer, has been given a lot of recognition because of his redeeming work. He became famous because he was willing to redeem Elimelech's property and marry uh, Ruth and produce a son with her. The closest relative refused to marry Ruth, and we, we don't even know his name. We still don't know his name. We won't know his name. Recognition in God's sight won't come when we reject the Redeemer Jesus Christ, which was what Ruth, near kinsman, did. Thus, no recognition. He rejected, you know, t- taking the obligation of being the next of kin and the, the kinsman Redeemer. And because he rejected that potential blessing, he's not recognized. He refused to marry Ruth. He refused to raise up children from her, which would have led to Jesus Christ. Eternal recognition is found in coming to Jesus Christ and receiving Him as your Savior. As John said in John 1, 12, but as many as received Him, that is Jesus, to them He, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. So those who, believe Christ, those who, who receive Christ, Jesus gives them the, the, the right to become a child of God, for those who believe in his name. Verse 15. And may he be to you a, a, a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. The word he now speaks of the newborn son of Ruth. Verse 15 predicts the future of Naomi in regards to her relationship to the new son and and it applies both to the son of Ruth and to the son of God. The women predicted that Ruth's son would be to Naomi, notice, a restorer of life, notice, and a nourisher of your old age. As grandparents, we can understand this. Because when we get grandkids, man, they 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 can revive us, they can you know, nourish us, and they, they, they bring us back to life again. It means that grandchildren refresh grandparents. Grandchildren can restore the grandparents' life and nourish them to keep the grandparents going. Grandchildren are inspiring. Grandchildren do wonderful things for grandparents. They add so much blessings to the lives of grandparents. And that's how it was with with Ruth's son. And I remember a time when one person asked me, Hey man, when are you going to have grandchildren? It's not up to me. (laughs) <laughs> Talk to my kids. I said, I, I'd love to, but you know, I, I, but I used to think, because you know, they told me, man, there's nothing like grandchildren. I used to think, what's better than your own kids? Because I didn't have, I didn't know. But I did tell you what, when I had mine, hey, I understood what that person was telling me. There's nothing like it. They're inspiring and they're tiring too, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless. <laughs> There's nothing like having grandchildren, man. It's such a blessing. And this is, this is what Naomi was experiencing. That's what it means here that it, that when the women said, may he be a nourisher of your old age. May they nourish you, revive you, restore you, rejuvenate you. And that's how it was with Ruth's son. Naomi was overjoyed in Ruth's son from the very beginning. Naomi had come home from Moab, remember, in gloom. She had come from Moab to Bethlehem in gloom. But that new son of Ruth, man, it would replace her gloomy spirit and turn it into gladness. Jesus Christ, when he becomes our Savior, he definitely restores one's life and he nourishes one's life in old age. Caleb, man, at 85 said, hey, give me that mountain. He wasn't ready to retire. He wasn't ready to quit. He said, Lord, give me more. I'm still alive. I'm still capable, but it's because of God. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, Christ made us alive. And that makes him the great restorer of our life. You might be older in this life in terms of years on earth, but salvation through Jesus Christ will nourish that person's soul for all eternity. Again, it says here, for your daughter-in-law who loves you—I'm sorry, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Now, for he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has ten and, and has better uh, has been better to you than ten uh, than seven sons. The women gave some some high praises here for Ruth. When they were congratulating her for, her for her grandson or for Ruth's son. Two specific things are mentioned in, in, in their praises to Ruth. First, her compassion. She said, your daughter-in-law who loves you. I'm sorry, and giving that praise to Naomi. Your daughter-in-law who loves you. Compassion. One of the keys to Ruth's gracious life was her great love. She had great love for Naomi. She loved the right people and she loved the right God. Think about it. The two go together. When Ruth followed Naomi to Bethlehem, one of the things that Ruth said to Naomi to show her commitment to coming to Bethlehem, back in chapter 1, verse 16, she said, Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Right people and the right God, they go hand in hand. Our relationship with God has a lot to do with our relationship to each other. If we love God, we'll have a love for God. If we love God correctly, we'll love the things that are right. And what a person loves shows their character and their doctrine. In Amos 5.15, it says, Hate evil and love what is good. Hate evil and love what is good. Remember Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus was saying, you know, uh, you know that... that that you you fed me when, when I was hungry. You gave me food to, uh, to, uh, to eat when I was hungry. And you, you gave me something to drink when I was thirsty. And he said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And then he did the opposite. Those who didn't feed and those you didn't give drink, those you didn't visit in prison. He says, when you didn't do that, you didn't do that to me. And what he's saying is that your yieldedness to God is measured by your yieldedness to man. In other words, what you do for your fellow man, you're doing it to the Lord. And what you don't do for your fellow man, you're not doing it for the, or to the Lord. Jesus was the object of the compassion, kindness, and generosity, while these honorable actions of charity were done to people, and the main application was to Jesus. In other words, when, we, when, when these that he was talking about showed compassion and kindness and generosity to those other people... When they were doing these honorable actions of charity, they were actually doing it. The main application was to Jesus. And so the judgment here in what Jesus said is focusing on a person's attitude and actions towards Jesus Christ. He is the standard of all divine judgment upon man. He will judge us according to our works. And again, it's what we do for him. Or what we don't do for him. We will be judged for those things. Remember when Saul met Jesus on the road to Damascus? Remember what Jesus asked Saul? Why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting the church. He was going out and rounding up Christians. And having them arrested and and martyred and whatever. And all all the things that he could do thinking he was serving God. And when Jesus said to him, why are you persecuting me? He would say, whatever you're doing to all of those people, you're doing that to me. You're doing that to me. Why are you persecuting me? So Ruth's love for Naomi was shown to, to everybody in her unselfish act, her unselfish care for Naomi, which Boaz commended her the first time that he met Ruth back in chapter two. See, love shows and is shown more in our works than in our words. Don't tell me you love me. Show me you love. Too many people are long on words and short on works when it comes to love because their love is lacking. Words need to be a part of love, but works is the proof of love. Nice works, hey, they're just a facade. They're just a mask. There are many slick talkers, but few true walkers. And no matter how nice the words sound, if there's no works to follow, those words they're meaningless. James said, by faith, or faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. It's easy to say, I have faith. It's easy to say, I love you. But James says, hey... Without showing it, what you say and what you think you're going to, it's meaningless. Ruth's value was so great that the women said it's better, you know, your love is so, you're better than having seven sons. Ruth's value was so great, the woman said it's better, you know, it's better than having seven sons. And and sons were, were meaningful in that day. Sons were considered to be more valuable than daughters in those days. You know, when a a, a mom was expecting and, and everybody would gather for this big party when that child was born, ready to rejoice, if it was a girl, they got their stuff and they went home. How sad. But that's the way it was. That's what they did. If it was a daughter, they would take their stuff and go home because sons were so valuable and important in those times. And that's what it means when he says, hey, you know what? You know, it's better than having seven sons. Your value, your personal value is better than, it, than if you had seven sons. Because they were more sons were more valuable than daughters in those days. So for women to be said to be more valuable than seven sons, that was a very great com- compliment. The number seven is symbolic here for, for, for many. The number 10 is also used in the same way because Elkanah said to his wife Hannah, Am I not better to you than than 10 sons? Now, the numbers obviously are different, but they still teach the same lesson. It's a comparative statement that says something is a lot more valuable than something else. The goodness of Ruth's character, plus the fact that she had given birth to a son in the line of Christ really justifies the compliment that she's been given, that she's worth a lot. More than seven sons. And this message is helpful for all of us because it says it's not quantity, but quality that's important to the Lord. Verse 16 and 17. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. And also the neighbor women came, uh, uh, gave him a name, saying, there is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Verse 17 says the women gave Ruth's newborn son the name Obed. This doesn't mean that these women decided and chose the name for Boaz. Jewish practice left that important decision up to Boaz and Ruth. But the women went along with the parents and called the child the same name. And the name is significant because the name Obed Obed means servant. Obed means servant of God. Now, in general, think about it, that's the name that's given every person who's born again. When you're born, your name is Servant. Servant of God. We're not saved to sit around. We're not saved to to do nothing. We're saved to serve. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 10, because we are his workmanship. That means masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are created for good works. In the middle of verse 16, it says, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom. So grandma reaches out. She takes this newborn uh, bundle of joy and she holds him close to her. You know, this This happens every day. Every day. Where children are born, or grandchildren are born, and they come in contact with their grandparents. Everybody wants to hold them. And if there if there were any thoughts left in, in Naomi's mind, any thoughts you know in her heart about the past days of the loss of her sons and her husband, any thoughts of, of past mourning, uh, which you know which went with her to Bethlehem. Remember, and caused her to tell the people, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. Instead, when Naomi held that child close to her, all of that would disappear. Like I said, the name Naomi means pleasant, while the name Mara means bitterness. But with this little bundle of joy in her arms, Naomi would look... Uh, She would look like Naomi and not uh, Mara. She would look pleasant and not bitter anymore because rejoicing filled her heart when that baby filled her arms. Verse 16 says, Naomi became a nurse to him. Now the word nurse here doesn't mean she actually nursed. She wasn't actually a wet nurse like the baby's mother would be. It means to to care faithfully for someone or something. It's the same word translated brought in Esther chapter 2, verse 7, which speaks of Mordecai who, who brought Esther, along, who raised Esther. The word nurse here says Naomi was a babysitter, which is something a lot of grandmothers do a lot of. Naomi would be a great help to Ruth and the baby in her babysitting. Her influence will be a lot like that of grandmother, uh, the grandmother of Timothy, of whom Paul said, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois. Naomi had helped Ruth to follow Jehovah God. And now she could help Ruth's son follow Jehovah God too. The last few verses, eighteen through twenty-two, is a list of ten names of ancestors and descendants of Obed and the new son of Boaz and Ruth. These names start with Phares, the oldest son of Judah, and ends with, the David, with David, the great king of Israel. And this list is found four times in Scripture: twice in the Old Testament, here in Ruth, chapter four, verse eighteen through twenty-two, and First Chronicles two fifteen uh, five through fifteen. It's found twice in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, 3 through 6, and Luke 32, uh, uh, Luke 32 uh, verse 33. This list is part of the most important gene- genealogy in Scripture. And part, of the mo- and part of the importance of this record is found in the fact that it's the lineage, the ancestry of David, the great king of Israel. But what makes this record the most significant genealogy in Scripture is the fact that this record is part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. This record is part of the lineage that fulfills the messianic promise given to Judah centuries before that said, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor, Genesis 49.10. The list of names given, given proof, uh, giving proof of the reality of Christ is found in the genealogies given in Scripture, like this one given here in the book of Ruth. And the record is what explains why the book of Ruth is included in the canon of Scripture. It's the requirement for the book being in the Bible. Without this list of names, the book of Ruth loses its importance. But with these names, we can see why it's in the Bible. With this list of names being an essential part of the lineage, that is the family of Jesus Christ, the story of Ruth becomes more than just an interesting story of love and romance. Instead, it becomes an important part of the message of Jesus Christ. And it gives us an important connection in the lineage of Christ. In Matthew 1.5, where a genealogy of Christ is given, we read about Boaz, Obed, and Ruth. And the fact about the story of Ruth taking on great significance because it's related to Jesus Christ, it emphasizes an important truth that says what matters in our life is that which we have have to do with Jesus Christ. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. This should be our motive for life, our motive for living, our motive for why we do what we do. What we do for Jesus Christ is what gets the most attention from God. And when we get to heaven, we will see this truth clearer than ever. Now, here on this earth, we might not, we might not be in the spotlight. We not might not be on the front stage here on earth. We not might not have many worldly achievements. But you see if those things don't have anything to do with the cause and the honor for Jesus Christ, they're not going to be important in heaven. They won't be in the spotlight in heaven. They won't even be mentioned in heaven. Scripture carefully and repeatedly records the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And these lists confirm the fact that He is the Messiah of Israel. The unbelief in Jesus Christ when He was on earth wasn't because there wasn't enough proof to support what he said, to back up his claims. There was more than enough proof in what he did and also in the genealogies of Christ. All the skeptics have to do to verify the claims of Christ was to check these genealogies. And they would have verified that Jesus Christ was the one in line for David's throne so they would have received Jesus as their king. And with this excellent confirmation that we have available for Christ in His time on earth, it shows how determined the unbelief of the Jews Jews were when Christ was on the earth. The unbelievers weren't going to believe, they weren't going to believe no matter what evidence they had, no matter what the facts were. Unbelief in Jesus Christ is still that way today. It always ignores the facts. So in closing, Obed would bring blessing to Israel. Obed was the was the grandfather of King David, one of Israel's, again, greatest rulers. When the name David is mentioned, we usually think of either Goliath or Bathsheba. And David did commit real sin, great sin. But you know what? He was also a great man of faith who loved God and God, he, whom God used to build the kingdom of Israel. And he led people in overcoming their enemies, expanding their inheritance, and most of all, he led people in worshiping God. He wrote worship songs for the Levites to sing. He invented musical instruments for them to play. He spent a lifetime gathering wealth, remember, for the building of the temple. He gave it all to Solomon to build the temple. And God gave him the plans for the temple so so Solomon could do the job. So whether David had his hand had in his hand a sling or a sword, or a harp, or a hymnal, David was a great servant of God who brought many, many untold blessings to Israel. Father, we thank you once again for this time we have spent in this this wonderful little book, God. A little book, but so big in character, personal character and and servanthood, and moral decency, Father, and many lessons that we learn from it, God. So, Lord, may we continue to glean from this book. May we continue to apply the things that we learn from this book, God. And most importantly, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus Christ is Savior. And that we need a Savior that's why the Father sent a Savior to this earth. Because we needed forgiveness of our sins. And if you're here tonight and, and you know you don't, you don't have Christ as your Savior, again, it's not a luxury, it's not an option, it's, it's a need. And so again, to seek Him with all of your heart, to seek forgiveness of your sins, to have a relationship with Him, And to walk with him. And to become his child. That's your greatest need tonight. Father, we thank you. We we love you. And may you be with my brothers and sisters as they make their way home tonight, God. Watch over them. Protect them, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.